Welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now, today's message. How we doing, everybody? Good to see you all this morning, and welcome to those of you who are joining from home. I want to invite you to turn back to the text that was read for us at the outset of our service today, Matthew chapter 18. We are in the middle of a summer series that uh, just has a couple of weeks left in it, a series on prayer. I can't think of a more appropriate time in our life, our culture, our nation, in fact, to talk about the subject of prayer than right now, not only because we need prayer, but because so many people, even including a lot of followers of Jesus, feel intimidated by prayer. So many people feel that their prayers aren't working. Uh, so many people have, have a misunderstanding of how prayer is supposed to work. And so Jesus, in Matthew chapter 6, gives us a model for how to pray the kinds of prayers that will change the world. And we've already looked at several elements of that. What does it mean to pray, your kingdom come? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What does it mean to pray and to, to count on God always and exclusively for your provision to say, give us this day our daily bread. Every morning I get up and I recognize that from the breath in my lungs to the heart that beats in my chest to the food that is on my table is supplied to me by a good and benevolent God and to continue looking to him alone, even in the kinds of trying times that we're facing right now, then there's that ultimate need that we have. And it's not for food or drink. It is for forgiveness. And last week we looked at what, it's, what does it mean to say, forgive us our debts. Uh, a little bit more than just sort of the mindless, God, whatever I've done, forgive me. We talked about that a little bit last week. But today we look at the second part of that phrase that says this, as we forgive our debtors. So I want you to think first and foremost about this with me holistically. Forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors, it's really a lot like the left and right wings on an airplane. Which wing do you need more? If you're going to get off the ground and stay off the ground, you need them both, don't you? And so prayer that is powerful is a prayer that recognizes you can't have one of those without the other. Prayer that is powerful includes forgiveness of sins, but that forgiveness Here's the beauty of it. It empowers you and me to be the conduit of God's forgiveness in the lives of others. Now, that sounds beautiful until it comes time to do it. And then it's tough, right? Sounds gorgeous. Sounds like a wonderful thing, but it's a lot harder to do, especially if you've been wronged or wounded by another person. It's hard enough, in fact, when we define it correctly. And then you throw on top of that all this confusion about what it actually means to forgive. So let's begin with some clarification because there's some misunderstandings about what it means to forgive others. Uh, and I want to clear that up for you. First of all, forgiveness is not enablement. All right, To forgive someone doesn't mean you keep writing checks and transferring funds from your banking app to theirs when they continue to mismanage money. It doesn't mean you buy substances for people who abuse them and can't stop. It doesn't mean you continually make yourself emotionally available to that person who has continuously beat you down. That's not forgiveness. That's enablement. 
That's not good for you, but it's also not good for the other person. It doesn't teach them to grow or to get better. Secondly, forgiveness is not passivity. I've seen this in a lot of abusive relationships where the abuser will invoke the language of forgiveness to try to get the abused to come back into the relationship because after all, this is what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to forgive me. Well, forgiveness doesn't mean you continue being the doormat for the other person. Finally, forgiveness is not pacifism. A lot of well-meaning but mistaken followers of Jesus believe that this idea of personal forgiveness means that you should never defend yourself or your family. A Christian, for, for example, should never own a firearm. Certainly countries should never go to war. Evil would never rise to such an extent that it would be necessary to do all of those kinds of things. Well, forgiveness really isn't about any of those things. The core of what it means to forgive from the heart, you personally. So when I pray, forgive me as I forgive others, what am I praying for the ability to do? Well, to forgive, the etymological root of the term just means to let go. That's what it means. When you forgive, what you're choosing to do is not to invite more harm. You are instead letting go of past harm, and you're doing it primarily for your own sake. So to forgive is, in essence, to release any expectations you have toward another person who has wronged you. And let me tell you what comes out of this. The result is a release of anxiety and bitterness and malice in your own heart toward that person. And so here's the bottom line. Praying people, Jesus says, are a forgiven people. People whose sins have been wiped out. Forgive us our debts. But forgiven people... Yeah, have you heard, you probably heard this in the counseling realm, hurt people, hurt people. You ever heard that? That's true. You know what else is true? Forgiven people forgive people. That's what's true. And we see that in this model prayer of Jesus, that we would pray, forgive us our, our debts as we forgive our debtors. Now, even with that clear meaning, it's still not easy, is it? Some of you are thinking about somebody right now. Your blood pressure just ticked up about 20 points. Diastolic and systolic. You just, I mean, you can feel the flush in your face. You're thinking about that person. You're thinking about that organization, maybe even that church or that company or something that's going on, and you're wondering, how am I going to do this? But how much does our world need people like this right now? Right? It's worth the question, is it not, to ask, how do we get this done? How do we get this done? And when you're deeply wronged, when you don't want to let it go, how do you get over that and actually get it done? Well, it will bring you some comfort, I would think, to know that Jesus' disciple Peter had this same question. In fact, that's actually the context in which this passage in Matthew 18 occurs. Jesus has been teaching his disciples, and more specifically, he's been teaching them about forgiveness. Peter knows. He has heard his Lord speak. Jesus does not stutter when he utters these commands. He knows it's important. He knows if I'm going to follow Jesus, I got to learn to do this. But like you and me, he kind of wants to know what the limits are. All right? I'll be teaching a philosophy course this fall at a, at a university out of state, uh, it's an online course, and, and I know I'm going to have one kind of student in that class, and there's going to be probably five or six of them out of a class of about 20. It's usually about 20 or 25%. And this is what they're always in the first email. And it, it, it's not worded exactly this way, but it's kind of close. What's the least amount of work I have to do to get out of here? You ever met somebody like that? Some of you have people who like that who work for you, or if you're a good boss, they used to work for you. 
right? What's the least amount I can do? Well, that's kind of what Peter's asking here. Wait a minute, Lord. There's got to be some limits to this, right? I mean, exactly how many times do I have to do this? Here's a, here's a good idea, Lord. How about seven? I'm familiar with the Hebrew Scriptures. I was raised on them, good Jewish boy. Seven seems to be a really significant number. How about seven times? Then on the eighth time, I can unleash the Kraken on those people. And Jesus responds by saying, how about this? How about 70 times seven? And I can almost imagine this redneck fisherman kicking his sandals off so he's got his toes and his fingers to be able to do the math. And Jesus doesn't wait for him to get done. He doesn't wait for him to get to that 490. He's not sure he can count that high anyway. Instead, what he does is he launches into a story because Jesus is not interested in your personal legalisms or mine. He wants us to obey the heart of his commands. And here's the promise. When we obey that command, when coupled with the model prayer in Matthew 6, if we will pray as Jesus expects, here's the promise. God will fill us with the power to forgive. And we'll know that we're a forgiven people who forgive when we take the, the following four steps. Number one, we've got to remember. Remember what God did for us, more specifically. Verse 23, therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all he had and payment to be made. Now, Jesus begins this story with, with something. Every presentation of the gospel, if it's a real presentation of the gospel, will always include. It is a reminder of the debt that we owe God. And Jesus does this through a rather exaggerated example. A king calls in one of his slaves, and he's basically he's calling for the note. He's saying, all right, I want the whole thing. Balloon payment due right now. And the amount is 10,000 talents. I'm sure that means nothing to most of you. How, do you. how in the world do you do a currency conversion when you're 2,000 years removed? Well, let me, let me share with you a little bit about what that figure meant, why it would have made the eyes pop of anybody listening at that point. The best year that Herod ever had when he was in the palace, he brought in 900 talents of revenue. That's for an entire government, and that's for a ruler. Okay, so 10,000 talents. You're talking about being the ruler of Judea. It's going to take you somewhere between 11 and 12 years to accumulate that much wealth. A slave, by contrast, their average salary was about a denarius per day. And so the amount Jesus uses here, follow me now, was enough to pay one, day, one slave's wages for 100 million days. You read it? All right. So Peter's like 70 times 7. No, it's bigger than that. It's far bigger than that. So let's do, let's do the math. This slave needs to work seven days a week, 365 days a year. He needs to sink every cent he earns into this debt. And he has to hope beyond hope that this king will not tack interest onto the top of that. And if he's able to do that, he'll be able to pay that loan back with zero interest in 247 thousand years. Some of y'all feeling better about your house mortgage right now, aren't you? 247. This is another way of saying there is no way 
to get out of this debt. So it's obviously an exaggerated case. No king's going to loan that kind of money to a slave anyway. But Jesus means for this to be exaggerated to point out that this slave owes a debt he can never, ever, ever in his lifetime ever repay the king. And that story is told because it parallels something even more real than that. You know, I'm amazed sometimes when I talk to people about their relationship with God, their assurance of heaven. Uh, and more particularly, when I, when I hear people go, well, I'm not sure. I just, I kind of hope I get there. And I know that the scriptures teach that they were written so that you, me, anybody in the world might know that they have eternal life. I want people to know that they know. But usually when there's not that absolute certainty, you know what it's based on? Pointing back to oneself. And I go, what are you counting on exactly? Well, I'm, I'm a good person. Okay. I would, but, but you've done some bad stuff, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, Pastor, you, I, I don't even want to tell you some of the stuff. I, okay. But you think you can make up for the bad stuff with good stuff. Yeah. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, I think that's possible. That's what I'm hoping for. Well, see, stories like this one remind us that if you're depending on your own effort to pay your sin debt to God, you will pay that debt for the rest of eternity. That, brothers and sisters, is why hell is forever. Because it's the only way it gets paid. But remember as well, this is an example given in the context of a lesson about our duty to forgive others. Jesus says, I expect you to forgive, and it'll be far easier for you to do if the first thing you do is remember what you've been forgiven of. Man, I owed so much to God. So much more than this person owes me. Remember that debt. And then if you're truly forgiven, you know what you'll do? You'll relish in what God has done for you. Look at verse 26. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. <laughs> sure he will. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. So this is a textbook example of desperation, right? What the slave is literally saying is, your majesty, I just need 274,000 years. That's all I need. And I, even in his own mind, he knows how ridiculous this promise is. There's no way. And Jesus says this king was moved to pity, which is another way of saying he joined the slave in his sorrow and the emotional connection with this other person moved him to eat his losses and he forgave the entire note just like that. How unrealistic, how fictional is this story? This is unheard of. Kings in the first century felt no compassion for slaves. Slaves in the mind of a king were barely human. Why in the world would you do anything to help them? Why would you have an emotional connection with someone like this? Do you know what this story reminds us of? There is a king above every king who did feel enormous compassion for a human race that was infinitesimally beneath him, that owed him an unpayable debt. And this is the point that Jesus is making. What this perpetual, eternal punishment coming to him, and it was all wiped out in a single moment of royal compassion. That's exactly what happened to you and to me when God in his mercy forgave us. Let me ask you a question. In the middle of all the things that our world is, is, is finding itself in now, when you are, are, are tempted to depression, to despair, to sadness, to anger, to lashing out, to bitterness, when's the last time you really relished 
in the overwhelming, immeasurable forgiveness of God. When's the last time you thought about a debt you could not pay that was wiped out for you in a single moment of royal compassion? See, when we fully live with that constant awareness of, I mean, I mean a debt that is no longer mine, a hell that I will never see, a judgment from God that I will never face, that awareness overcomes any bitterness I might have toward another person. You need to relish in the forgiveness of a God by remembering the debt that you owed to him. And when you have done that, you can then relinquish the debt against others. Look at verse 28. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will repay you. Does this sound familiar? Read a couple of verses prior to that. Happened, right? this, this same guy who's choking this other servant, this fellow servant, had said the same thing, not five verses earlier. He refused. Went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. We might say this fellow had a real short memory, didn't he? Because when you forget the goodness and the blessing of God, and your focus moves from him to situations, to people, to circumstances. Boy, it's harder to get rid of bitterness, isn't it? And how much is that increasing in our day? How many decades-long friendships have been ended just in the last five months over things that, I just don't know of a better way to say it, are profoundly stupid? How much bitterness is there? How much refusal to let go? How many grudges are being held? That's what happens when you forget the goodness and the blessing of God. And the result is of this bitterness is not just how this man reacts, it is to what he reacts. 100 denarii. That's two and a half months' pay. That, you know, the general rule, or it was when I got engaged, is what you want to spend on your, your soon-to-be bride's diamond ring is about two months' salary, okay? Um, I, I remember paying that sucker off. I remember, I remember doing that. I, I didn't have them. I was, I was still a college student. I can't believe she said yes. And, um, but I'm telling you, it, it, I, I, I didn't have the money to pay the whole thing. I had to make payments, and it took several months. But here's the thing. It was it was payable, right? It's, it's, you know, debt that's payable is different than debt that's not payable. This is a payable debt. This man who's just been forgiven of an unpayable debt has just refused to show mercy to a man who, unlike him, is actually in a position to be able to make things right. And look at the similarity otherwise. This fellow slave is also sorrowful. He uses exactly the same words. As his fellow slave. But this man who had just been pardoned and set free is so bitter, he refuses to forgive. There's a story about General James Oglethorpe, a British soldier, founder of the colony in what would soon be the state of Georgia, was having a conversation with John Wesley, an Anglican pastor, the founder of Methodism, about this issue of forgiveness. I don't know what the circumstances or situation was surrounding this. It could have been a battle that had taken a lot of his men. I don't know what it was. But General Oglethorpe said to Wesley, I never forgive and I never forget. And Wesley responded by saying, well, in that case, sir, I hope you never sin. 
See, the only person who has a right to hold a grudge is a person who has never wronged anybody else. And if you don't learn to forgive others, that grudge is going to eat away. It's going to kill you. Someone once described it as drinking poison waiting on somebody else to die. You're holding on to this thing. And if you don't learn to forgive others, it's going to eat away at your joy, your effectiveness in serving the Lord, your peace of mind, and even your love for God. So the thing to do is to let it go. You cannot serve God and you cannot have joy by continuing to bring up something painful in the past that someone did to you. Refuse to forgive? All it does, again, this isn't about enablement. Some of you may have faced horrible abuse. This isn't about inviting that person necessarily back into your life. This is not about enabling them, blessing them, being passive, being a doormat. It is for your good that you let the bitterness go because all it's going to do otherwise is make you miserable and sometimes the consequences are even worse let's continue reading beginning in verse 31 we need to recognize the the consequences of an unforgiving spirit when his fellow servants saw what had taken place they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place then his master summoned him and said to him you wicked servant I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? You notice the parallel there? Jesus' prayer, forgive us as we forgive others here. Why didn't you forgive him as I forgave you? And here's the consequence. In anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. Now, a little history 101 about how debtor's prison worked in the first century. When you went to prison, you couldn't work. Therefore, you couldn't make money. Therefore, you couldn't pay what you owed. But you also couldn't get out of jail until you paid off the debt. So in debtor's prison in the first century, debtor's prison always carried a life sentence. Here's what's going on. He delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. Now listen very carefully to these next words. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. That ought to sober you up on a Sunday morning. What in the world? I mean, is Jesus teaching that there's a a condition on God's forgiveness of me? Pastor, I thought we believed here that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and the death and resurrection of Christ alone, that I can't add my works to it. Well, that's true. We do believe that here. And thankfully, the rest of the New Testament doesn't leave us blindly trying to figure out how all of this works. Paul, in Ephesians chapter 2, codifies this relationship that Jesus describes for us. Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. In other words, even the faith you exercise doesn't belong to you. God had to give that to you in order to give you the agency, in order to believe. It is the gift of God, not as a result of work, so that no one may boast. All right, it's all by grace, right? Well, what does that mean? Well, let's keep reading. Always read the rest of the passage. For we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. John Calvin put it this way. Faith alone saves, but the kind of faith that saves is never alone. Never. 
Salvation is by grace through faith. It is totally unconditional, but it produces good works. And according to Jesus, one of those good works is the elimination of an unforgiving spirit. Jesus is telling Peter, there is no way a truly forgiven man or woman, someone whose own sins caused him to eventually be nailed to a cross, there's no way that person could then turn around and refuse to forgive another for a debt that is much smaller by comparison. And sometimes I think we forget this in our, in our westernized up until the present age, rather easy life that we have enjoyed in this culture and our faith has sort of been integrated into that. And we forget that salvation is not just about getting into heaven and escaping hell. It's about conforming to the image of Jesus himself. That means you've got to be willing to do what Jesus did, which includes letting go of a desire for revenge and asking the Lord to grant you the gift of forgiveness. And if that drives your prayers, your prayers will be effective. Here's the clear message. If that kind of spirit isn't working itself out in your life, you need to recognize the seriousness of that and what that could mean. But here's the promise. When we have a forgiving spirit, that reaction, man, especially in a day like ours, it confounds the world and it glorifies God. You and I never look more like our Heavenly Father than when we choose to forgive. And so we should pray, forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors for things much smaller by comparison. Many years ago, a father and his daughter living on the Kansas prairie and they saw a fire coming their way. And when you, you ever been out there, it's just flat. Like if you're standing on the east side of Kansas, I think sometimes you can see the west side of Kansas. You can see the Colorado border. It's just flat. So they see this thing coming for miles and miles and miles. And this little girl, probably about my Gracie's age, around 11, 12, is afraid. She becomes more concerned when she realizes we're not leaving. But what she doesn't realize is in between their home and that fire, Dad had already burned out a large area, huge circumference all the way around. And as that fire started to get closer, it freaks her out because as he picks her up, he doesn't run away from the fire. He runs toward it until they're standing right in the middle of that burned out spot. And she can feel the heat and she can hear the roar. And she tucks her little head into, into dad's chest and he just grabs her really tight. And as the fire encircles them, as it encircles them, surrounds them, but doesn't consume them, he comforts his little girl by saying this, those flames can't touch us, honey, because we're standing where the fire has already been. When we stand in the forgiveness of God, when we pray, forgive us our debts, we can do so knowing that he will, knowing that the judgment has already come, knowing that the blood that is required of death for sin has already been spilled out, knowing that the wrath of God has already been satisfied in the death of Jesus. Brother and I, you, you brothers and sisters and I, are standing where the fire has already been. But let me tell you something else. People who stand in that place can't start fires either. 
because there's no fuel left for it. That's what happens when God grants us through his own forgiveness the power to forgive, and it is only those who by the power of God have forgiven their debtors who can truly pray, forgive us our debts. (laughs) That face that appeared when I started talking about forgiving others, see if you could erase it and replace it with the face of Jesus. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, one of the hardest things in the world for us to do is one of the things that when we think about it logically should be one of the easiest things. To remember the debt that we have been forgiven of and to in turn become the conduit of forgiveness in others. Father, in a day of bitterness and whataboutism and blaming anybody and anything for the frustrations that we feel at a moment like this, Grant us the ability to remember, no matter how the present circumstance we're in right now ends, we know how our lives are going to end if we truly belong to you. Because we're standing where the real fire has already been. We're standing where you have already stood and in our place have given your life. And the result of that is we have eternal life. And Lord, may the overflow of that become a conduit through our lives, that pours into other people. May we relish in that forgiveness. May we develop hearts of thankfulness because there's no more room for bitterness. And I make this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi, everybody. Pastor Joel here, and I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already received from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.